and this is, we're going to initially talk about the pulseless arrest algorithm, okay? And basically, initially starts out with our, our, um, our <clears throat> BLS, or basic life support algorithm, okay? We begin CPR, we give oxygen if we have it, we have a, uh, uh, access to a defibrillator, we, we, we uh, apply that. And then that's going to tell us if we have a shockable rhythm or not. Okay, we're going to go into this in more detail in terms of what we do in, in these situations. First, we're going to talk about a little bit about oxygen, although I don't dispense much oxygen from the uh, pharmacy, um, none actually. But nonetheless, it sort of, sort of goes into uh, when we're talking about our, our cardiac arrest algorithms. Um, impairment of oxygen during cardiac arrest, okay? Expired air, it's approximately 16 to 17% oxygen, okay? Um, there's a low mixed venous oxygen tension and saturation um, to low cardiac output. So what we want to actually do is try to increase this, although this is decreased. And then frequently there's a, uh, maybe a ventilation-perfusion mismatching, okay? We may be ventilating and not perfusing, or the other way around. We may be perfusing but not ventilating. So what, is, what, what happens when we give oxygen? Well, when we said that oxygen tension was low, we can actually increase our oxygen tension. We can increase our oxygen actual content, okay, to the patient and what's in the system. We, and we improve tissue, tissue oxygenation. We want to do that because we want to get, that's what we, we talked about, especially in our heart, the fuel that we need, okay, is oxygen, okay, carried by the blood. So hopefully we're able to improve this, okay. Now we really haven't done any studies to say that oxygen uh, improves mortality. It's just sort of a... Um, uh, entity that we think would be beneficial, obviously, in a situation where we have a, a decreased oxygenation. So when would we use this? Well, our indications would include acute chest pain, okay? So we talked yesterday about how people can have a, a closed artery, maybe a thrombus is in there where they've had a plaque develop, and, and so they're not, able to get, they're not able to get that fuel, that oxygen, to that uh, tissue that needs that, okay? So then it screams, it's screaming, just like you have your car that has a clogged fuel line, you hit the gas and it don't go, right? The same way with this, okay? You need, you need the fuel and it's not getting there. So your car sort of poops out. Well, in this situation, you have chest pain, okay? You have angina chest pain. Also, for any other uh, reason of suspected hypoxemia, okay, uh, then we would give oxygen. For some reason, pa patients are not able to oxygenate well. And then also in car um, a cardiopulmonary arrest. Toxicity, we don't worry about that too much acutely, okay, in the short term. Um, there is a subset of patients where that can uh, become a problem. Um, people that have chronic obstructive pulmonary disease or lung disease, um, they actually, by giving them oxygen, they're not used to that increased amount. We can actually depress their uh, drive uh, somewhat by giving them oxygen. But acutely, uh, not too much of a concern. Okay. So now we're going to get into some of the receptors that we talked about yesterday and start to get into one of our first drugs uh, that we talked about called epinephrine. Okay. So alpha-1, postsynaptic, okay, we already talked about this. It's going to cause vasoconstriction on those vessels, right? Okay. And when we constrict those vessels, just like our hydraulic system we talked about, we're going to get an increase in our pressure. So our blood pressure goes up when we stimulate these um, uh, with an agonist effect. Said so there was some receptors in the heart, although we really don't see much effect from uh, the alpha uh, agonist uh, uh, effect uh, when we stimulate these receptors. Alpha twos we talked about; these are presynaptic. Um, they basically occur, and I just said I was going to mention these briefly. These basically occur presynaptically. You guys done with this? Okay, so this is, here we got our norepinephrine being released over here, okay, and it's going to go over and bind over here. Now when I say presynaptically, what I'm talking about, these are, these are our, our uh, alpha-1s. This is where alpha-2s are, okay, they're prior to this synapse. And what they do is they regulate the release of norepinephrine, okay. 
So when we stimulate that, we decrease our release of norepinephrine. So they're associated with the innervation of vasoconstriction also. So we actually have drugs that we give to patients that have high blood pressure. Okay, we don't count, it's not a common first line agent, but we do, uh, it's a pretty common drug um, that we'll give that stimulate alpha 2s. Okay, and by stimulating alpha 2s, they, they decrease the release of norepinephrine. Okay, and by doing that, if you have less norepinephrine going across and working, what does norepinephrine do? We said, well, it's predominantly an alpha agonist, so it's going to cause constriction. If we have less release of norepinephrine, what happens? Our blood pressure goes down. Okay, and that's why one of the that's one of the mechanisms through which clonidine, an oral medication that patients take uh, uh, for uh, high blood pressure, works. Okay, it's sort of a and, and, and in a way, it's a negative, it's not a directly negative feedback, but it's a, a, a negative way to influence our release of norepinephrine. Okay. Okay, beta adrenergic receptors, sympathetic site. Okay, we stimulate those, we get a positive chronotrope, so we increase our rate, we go faster with that, and we also have a positive inotropic effect when we stimulate. Okay, positive meaning more, so increased force of contraction inotropic effect, okay? And also um, will increase automaticity. Beta 2s affect vascular smooth muscle, okay? Will cause vasodilation, which we mentioned, especially in the arterioles. <clears throat> will also um, can relax the smooth muscle in, in the uh, lungs and in the gut. Dopaminergic receptors, okay? We mentioned these briefly when we just talked about dopamine. Okay, it's the only drug that we're going to be dealing with that, that, that has these. These are specific to, to dopamine, okay, not epinephrine or vasopressin or anything else. Dopamine, pretty easy to remember with the dopaminergic part in the uh, name. Basically, we said this dilates the renal and mesenteric vasculature field, okay, when we use a low dose of dopamine, okay. And this may hold up to 30 to 50% of our cardiac output when this is dilated. Okay, so this is pretty significant. So you will see a decrease in blood pressure when you use dopamine at a very low, low, in a very low, low range. Okay, that's why dopamine is a little bit unusual. And most of these drugs, we titrate off, down to nothing. Okay, dopamine, if you're using it for blood pressure, what happens when you get to that low range? You start to go lower. So dopamine is not one that we, we go all the way to zero. Once we get to a low level and our pressure starts to drop as we go lower, you know, in the range of two, mics, two to three mics per kilo per minute, then we just shut it off. Because if we keep going down, we're going to dilate instead of help increase our pressure. Okay, so dopamine's a little bit tricky. It doesn't go all the way off to zero when we're going down with our blood pressure control. Okay? We see this occasionally in the ICU. A nurse will have a patient's on dopamine for, for pressure support, okay? And as the patient's pressure's improving, okay, the patient's responding, they're titrating down the drug, and then they get down to a low range. Usually it's on a night shift, what'll happen is the nurse will go down from, you know, four to three to two, and the patient's pressure will go down, and then they'll go back up to four, okay? Four mics per kilo per minute. They'll try it again in a couple hours, and the same thing happens. So we come in the morning, they go down to three, and then we just say, just shut it off, okay? Because they forget sometimes these effects that dopamine will have at low dose. You can't go all the way to zero with dopamine. Okay. All right, what's our IV fluid that we put a lot of these medications in? Well, our preferred solution is what we call 0.9 sodium chloride, okay, percent sodium chloride. Um, and that's what we also call normal saline. That's another name that we frequently use for that, and it's usually abbreviated NS. Okay, and that's our preferred agent, and I'll talk about why that is. We usually don't worry about sodium overload too much in patients with cardiac arrest. Okay, it can occur, but usually in the amounts that we're giving in terms of volumes for uh, uh, um, drips, uh, it is not a problem in the cardiac arrest situation. You can use D5, and actually some of the drips that you may have pre-made will come in D5W already. Okay. So uh, you don't, some, some things you won't have an option, they, become, they come in D5. And there is, there is some, some limited data that supports that uh, uh, dextrose may be associated with um, hyperglycemia and that's worse, associated with some worse neurological outcomes in some patients. Over, this is just goes to show you the second point here. Um, a 500 mil bag has 85 mils, or excuse me, 85 calories, okay? So not a, not a huge amount, let's say you got someone that's taken a 2,000. So basically what we do, this has changed a little bit just recently in the past year with uh, how we used to do this. We used to do um, 
three shocks. Now we don't do that anymore, and we sort of discovered that CPR is pretty, it's something that we never really want to get too far away from. We always want to be doing CPR when we're not shocking, um, uh, uh, in a shocking situation where we would do that uh, immediately. So what we do is we, we do our initial shock. We're in a Pulses VTAC VFib uh, 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 algorithm. We shock, continuing CPR. Patient doesn't res respond. We can shock again, continuing CPR in between and right after. Okay, that they found that this is very important, the CPR part. Okay, this is sort of why this has changed from just uh, the guidelines from uh, 2000. And then we consider what we call our perfusers. Okay, and our perfusers that we're going to talk about is epinephrine, which we mentioned. Okay, which we talked about yesterday when we were talking about the adrenergic system, or vasopressin, which we haven't mentioned yet. Okay, and then after that, we can shock again if the patients have not uh, 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 responded, continuing our CPR, and then we'll consider our antiarrhythmics if that if there's been no response after that third shock, or if the patient has converted um, after that third shock, continue our CPR, then we start our antiarrhythmics, and we'll talk about those in more detail. So epinephrine. Epinephrine or adrenaline, that was the uh, other name we said mostly used in the United Kingdom. Okay, causes an increase in systemic vascular resistance. We already said it's going to vasoconstrict, okay? And we want that to happen because what we want to happen in the cardiac arrest situation is we don't have blood, okay, your heart stopped, okay, or it may be, it, maybe it's in, in V-fib, okay, it's not pumping blood adequately, perfusing the body. So what we need to do is we need to get that changed right away because our, our heart and our brain okay need that oxygen and that's it's not getting them so what we want to do is we want to give something that's going to sort of direct that flow to these areas it's going to vasoconstrict and help us maybe improve our flow okay so it increases systemic vascular resistance increases our arterial pressure may increase and does increase heart rate okay because we said it will stimulate beta 1 receptors okay and we said beta receptors have a positive chronotropic effect, increase heart rate, increase the force of contraction, positive inotropic effect, okay. It is going to increase our myocardial oxygen requirements because we said when our heart is going faster, okay, we've got a faster heart rate and it's beating harder, it requires more fuel, okay. So that's, that's one of the, uh, uh, sometimes one of the downfalls of, of, of administering these types of agents to patients that have coronary artery disease. And then it increases automaticity, okay? So that automatic firing of the heart, okay? That's through the beta, beta 1 effects. So what is, what, what is the main effects when we give it in the cardiac arrest situation? Well, like we said, we're sort of shutting blood, so we're trying to get blood to our heart and to our brain, okay? We need to get, we need to get, uh, we need to get fuel there, oxygen there, so we can prevent major damage from occurring. We don't do that. The longer we go, the more of a problem we're going to have. In addition, there is some limited data that says that you may uh, be able to convert um, fine VFib to coarse VFib. Okay, and this may be a more shockable rhythm uh, to try to get patients out of this. Um, it's limited data, but there is some data out there that does suggest that. Okay, so when do we use epinephrine? What are its indications? Well, we use it in pulses arrest. We use it for ventricular fibrillation, pulses ventricular tachycardia. Okay, if we if we got a pulse, we're not giving epinephrine to someone. Okay, if they're in VTEC, asystole. Okay, nothing flatline. Okay, and then PEA or pulseless electrical activity. Okay. It also can be used for symptomatic bradycardia, although it's usually not our first-line agent, um, usually refractory to atropine and pacing, um, uh, and if we don't have other agents, uh, it's not a common agent, but it can be used. Also, we'll use it for anaphylaxis, and this will be in a much lower dose in a much different uh, uh, administration route. Usually, when we're talking about cardiac arrest situation, we're using a concentration of 1 to 10,000, okay? That's 1 milligram per 10 mLs. When we use it for anaphylaxis in people that are having allergic reactions, usually associated with immune, immune globulin uh, uh, effects, um, we use a much, a much different concentration. We're giving a, a dose of uh, 0.3 to 0.5 milligrams intramuscularly, okay? Not, subcut not subcutaneously anymore, I am, okay? 
<clears throat> and this is sort of a dis different situation. That's a 1 to 1,000 concentration, so it'll be completely different. So epinephrine and cardiac arrest, well, where did this come from? Well, back in the early days, decades ago, when they were initially trying to develop some algorithms, when these major groups got together and said, well, what, what, what are we going to use to try to make people live when they have these cardiac arrests? Well, they said, well, geez, we're using these one milligram doses in cardiac surgery where we're, you know, doing directly intracardiac to restart the heart after they've done uh, cardiac surgeries. Why don't we use that? Okay. So, okay, let's, let's do that. We didn't have a lot of data on that. So, so historically, the one milligram dose sort of got extrapolated and put in some of the basic algorithms due to that mechanism. Okay. Now, you've got to remember, you've got, you got the chest open, you're putting one milligram in the heart. So now, with the algorithms, what are we doing? We're putting one milligram. Where's that going? All over, right? Okay. Well, in the 1980s, so a bunch of people got started work, looking at this in, in, uh, in dogs and in, in other animals. And they found out that there was a, a significant dose response curve to epinephrine. Okay? They had to give much larger doses to get the response in these animals and what we were extrapolated, what we were using in humans. Oh, man, they were using up to 0.2 milligram per kilogram. So let's say we got a 100 kilogram guy, that would, that would be a 20 milligram dose versus one. 20-fold increase in dose. Okay, wow, that's huge. Okay, so up until the 92 guidelines, um, there were four trials that found that using different ranges of this high-dose epinephrine was, associ was associated with some improvement in return of spontaneous circulation. Okay, that's a new phrase, and I'll describe that in a second. But not, but did not, was not associated with any improvement in hospital uh, to, to, to survival to hospital discharge. Okay. Now, return of spontaneous circula circulation usually uh, is associated with the palpable carotid pulse, pressure of 60 millimeters of mercury. That's what I'm talking about when I say return of spontaneous circulation. Um, so they got a pulse back, basically, but no one lived any longer. They got the high dose versus the low dose. Okay. High-dose epinephrine was associated with some improvement in return of spontaneous circulation, like I said, in these trials, and also to hospital admit. Um, but it did not um, improve survival to discharge, and it didn't improve um, people that did survive their neurological outcome versus the low dose. Okay? So no improvement in either one of those. In addition, there was some data that said giving high doses, at least there was some animal data, and then later there was some uh, uh, human data that said giving very high doses actually worsens post-resuscitation myocardial function, okay? And by this, this may be the means which maybe some people are getting to the hospital alive, but the rates of surviving to get out of the hospital are no different because we're actually causing the heart to work worse, not as good, okay, when we give this high-dose epinephrine. That was sort of the thought behind that. And this is a trial uh, that was published that sort of looked at that. And basically, they broke their their groups down into a high dose, which were people that got greater than 15 milligrams of epinephrine for their cardiac arrest, or less than 15 milligrams uh, total of epinephrine for their cardiac arrest. And you can see their 24-hour survival rate was much better in the people that got the smaller dose epinephrine, almost twice that of what it was in the patients that uh, did not, uh, um, uh, that got the higher dose, 85% versus 41%. In addition, they looked at some, uh, some other uh, um, indices and they found that patients that got the higher dose uh, epinephrine had a lower cardiac index. This is a measure of cardiac function, okay, um, based on um, uh, standardized body surface area. In addition, they also had lower systemic oxygen consumption and delivery, okay. Also had significantly higher lactic acid levels, which is something that we don't want. We don't want that the high levels of uh, lactic acid. So there appeared to be some detrimental things going on in this study when patients got high dose in humans. We had some data in animals already that suggested that. But this study showed in humans that maybe the high dose was, was not associated with good outcomes after giving it, even though they may have survived to the hospital. So what are our 2006 guidelines? Well, we say now it's indicated for V-fib, pulses VTAC, pulses electrical activity, and also asystole. Okay. However, this is the this is the this is the catcher here. There have been no prospective placebo-controlled trials that have shown that it's better than placebo. So we've never tested this versus an NS. We may be causing more harm giving epinephrine. We don't know that. 
We've never done that. Okay. They say now it's a 2B recommendation again. And it was a class indeterminate, now it's gone to back to 2B, um, where it means there's some fair evidence to support this. And we'll talk about this and contrast it with epinephrine in a little bit, or vasopressin in a little bit. Um, high dose uh, does not improve survival to discharge, okay, or improve neurological outcomes in patients, okay. So what's our dose we use? We use one milligram intravenously or intraosseously, okay, we give this every three to five minutes, okay. We give this down the endotracheal tube, uh, we increase that usually by uh, two, two and a half times, so um, give two, two and a half, 2.5 milligrams. And there's your page for your text, which that should appear in. Okay. For bradycardia, it's a little bit different situation. It's a little bit easier to do. We mix one milligram in a, in a 500 mil bag, and then we start this at a rate, in usually around one mic per minute, okay? And we titrate this for the patient's heart rate, okay? A little bit different situation, and we don't do this very frequently. Usually use other agents before we use this. For anaphylaxis, our dose is 0.3 to 0.5 milligrams, which is 0.3 to 0.5 mils of a 1 to 1,000 concentration, and that should be uh, IM, okay? Things that we need to be careful with, well, we did say since it's going to get our heart going, going to jack up our heart, going to increase our heart rate, going to increase the force of contraction, <clears throat> we have to be, be aware that we may increase our myocardial oxygen demand, okay? So those people that have narrowing of those coronary arteries, that blood's not going to be able to get through as readily, okay? And they may have problems, okay? They may have ischemic chest pain. We need to be uh, careful uh, in not mixing this with alkaline solutions, so we don't want to administer this with bicarb, okay? This will make our solution not good, okay? So do not administer epinephrine in the, uh, 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 concurrently with uh, bicarb. Okay, so back, back to where we were here. So we shock, nothing, still in it. CPR, shock again, still, continue our CPR. Now we get down to here, okay? So we can give epinephrine, one milligram every three, okay, to five minutes, or vasopressin. Vasopressin's our alternative, which we're gonna talk about. And this, this vasopressin may replace our first or second dose of epinephrine. It's a situation where we may be able to use that. Okay. So vasopressin endogenously in us right now is working as an antidiuretic hormone. Okay. It's helping regulate our, our, our um, uh, output, our urine output. Okay. However, at, at non, uh, at, however, at very high doses, it becomes a non-adrenergic vasoconstrictor. So it doesn't work on that sympathetic system we talked about. It works on its own vasopressin receptors, and there's several types of this, but just so we know that it works on vasopressin receptors. So completely different system and receptors than the adrenergic system, okay? Um, causes uh, constriction of skin, skeletal muscle, and fat with less constriction in the heart and also in the kidneys, the renovasculature, which is sort of a, would be a beneficial effect because any times we cause constriction with a lot of these, uh, these, these agents, we decrease blood flow to these areas and then we worsen our, the, those organs' functions. So we cause constriction to the kidneys, our blood does not get down there, okay, our kidney function worsens, okay. Appears that vasopressin still may cause some constriction to the kidneys, but not as much. It improves coronary and cerebral perfusion in animals and, and, we, and we know that by improving um, coronary perfusion, uh, that may help us. That's one of the main factors that we have to do um, when we're in a rest situation to, to be able to convert someone is get that um, perfusion pressure up. There's no increase in myocardial oxygen consumption, okay, because it doesn't affect the heart like stimulating beta-1s. There's no beta-1 effect, so it doesn't make the heart rate go faster, okay, and it doesn't, and it doesn't make the heart squeeze any harder. No beta-1 effects here. It's just vasopressin receptors, okay, in the vasculature. Nothing there, okay, in terms of, of, of affecting heart rate or force of contraction. And it appears to work um, maybe better in uh, acidotic situations uh, with acidosis than do catecholamines, okay. And also it has a whopping half-life of 10 to 20 minutes. A lot of these drugs have half-lives of 1 to 2 minutes. Half-life means um, whatever that time is, half of that drug is going to be gone already. It's not going to be active, metabolized or cleared, okay. So if we have a half-life, we give, if we give epinephrine, we say it has a half-life of one minute, 
When we give one milligram, in one, in one minute, we're only going to have a half a milligram. That's how fast that's going. However, we give vasopressin, okay, we give a dose of that, we're going to still have half maybe in 20 minutes. Okay. So that's one of the reasons why we have to give epinephrine so, so frequently. So it just goes away quickly. Okay. It's, not, it's not around for a long time. Okay. So this fellow named Lindner did uh, uh, some initial studies with uh, epinephrine, or excuse me, with vasopressin, and he, he looked at these patients with uh, out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, and what he found was uh, he looked at patients that had return of spontaneous circulation versus those that did not have return of spontaneous circulation. And he found the people that had return of spontaneous circulation, okay, had much higher, st statistically significantly higher levels of vasopressin, okay, than those that never got anything back. Okay, so he's measuring these in these people that have a cardiac arrest. So he's taking out these blood samples and he's measuring, he says, wow, these people that are getting a pulse back have, an, have an a lot higher endogenous levels or body secreting a lot more vasopressin versus the people that don't. Okay? Now, normal levels are very low, less than, less than um, 20 picograms per mil there. So then he, he, he thought to look at, well, let's look at vasopressin, le vasopressin levels, but let's also look at epinephrine and norepinephrine levels in the bodies. And in another study in patients with out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, this was conducted in 60 patients. And what he found was, again, vasopressin had statistically significant higher levels in the patients that got a pulse back versus those that did not, okay? And he found the inverse was true with epinephrine and norepinephrine. If you had higher levels of epinephrine, look, you were, you were, likely, you were, you were likely not to get a pulse back. Well, what have we been using? We've been using epinephrine. We've been giving more epinephrine, and what he's showing, what the body's trying to do, is more epinephrine's associated with worse outcome. Okay, and the same he found true was with norepinephrine. The concentrations, I just tried to include it on one side, the concentration with norepinephrine were statistically significant in terms of no improve, uh, or no return of spontaneous circulation with higher levels of norepinephrine also. Okay, well that was sort of, that sort of creates an interesting hypothesis here. Okay, we're using epinephrine. So before he did this trial, he had eight patients that basically had failed standard um, ACLS therapy. Okay. Shock refractory, didn't respond to epinephrine. Eight patients, okay? CPR. He gave them a single one-time 40-unit dose of vasopressin in these eight patients, and guess what? Three of these patients survived with good neurological outcome and got discharged from the hospital, okay? That, that was just sort of a, a series that he did. So then he created this, he did this trial, and he looked at out-of-hospital patients, out-of-hospital cardiac arrest VFib patients again. 40 patients split them up into getting one milligram epinephrine doses or vasopressin. Okay? Let's look what he found. Look what he found across the board. Okay, vasopressin associated with better outcomes. Okay, you can see across the board looks better with vasopressin versus epinephrine. Okay, in these 40 patients. Okay? The only one that was statistically significant in this series was survival greater than 24 hours, and that was the initial um, evaluation they wanted to look at. Then they looked at this other data and found this uh, uh, to be a trend towards improvement with vasopressin. Okay, what are we using up to this time? We're using epinephrine. Okay. So initially, in the uh, 2000 guidelines, vasopressin was categorized as a Class 2B recommendation, meaning fair evidence to support this, uh, um, but but not real good evidence based on what they'd had. Um, and and this shifted epinephrine down to a class indeterminate. We didn't have really, we thought, good data to support that. So um, well, I'm going to give you some more information after this. But now, in 2006, vasopressin may replace the first or second dose of epi okay, in cardiac arrest. It's a one-time, 40-unit IV, uh, intraosseously given dose. Okay. Um, we also use vasopressin um, in the ICUs in a different setting, but we, uh, we do use that for uh, patients with septic shock that are... Uh, do, are, that are not responding well to catecholamines or dopamine, epinephrine, norepinephrine, things like this. Um, so we do use it for that. But for cardiac arrest, replace the first or second dose of, of epi. Okay. So now let's talk about vasopressin versus, the, our studies we have with vasopressin versus epinephrine. Okay. 
There was a large randomized trial that was conducted, um, and this was published um, after the 2000 guidelines came out where vasopressin got its class 2B recommendation. Okay, and they looked at 40 units versus 40 units single IV dose versus epinephrine, one milligram IV doses. And they basically found that there was no, no difference at all. This is in 200 patients, so a much larger study than it's ever been conducted. And this is one of the first studies that wasn't conducted by this fellow named Lindner in Germany. Okay? He was doing these small studies and doing these endogenous studies. Did the 40 patient study where he had 20 and 20. This was a 200 patient study. However, it was in hospital cardiac arrest. Okay? So patients, the, the thought is that people are going to get responded to a little bit quicker if they're in a hospital than if it's out of hospital cardiac arrest. Okay. And what they found, no difference in return to spontaneous circulation, no difference in survival to 24 hours, no difference in survival to hospital discharge. It didn't matter if you used epinephrine or vasopressin. Same rates across the board. Okay. In addition, there's a meta-analysis of five different trials that compared vasopressin and epinephrine. Now, these weren't using all similar dosing, and when we do meta-analysis, that's sort of trying to combine different trials to see if we can come up with a, a, a reasonable assessment um, um, in terms of outcomes which we may be able to apply. So we always have to take this with somewhat of a grain of salt, but found no difference in return of spontaneous, again, no difference in return of spontaneous circulation, uh, survival 24 hours, or survival to hospital discharge. Okay. So it didn't appear when we start to look at all the data that's come out now that there's any difference using vasopressin, which initially looked like maybe better, okay, with what Lindner was finding in Germany. Um, after the fact, with a 200 patient in-hospital cardiac arrest and these other trials using different doses of both agents, um, appeared to be no difference. So back to our algorithm, okay? So what do we have? Well, shock, CPR, okay, refractory shock again. Okay, refractory, still continuous CPR, are perfusers. Okay, epinephrine, probably slightly above um, vasopressin now. Okay, one milligram every three to five minutes. However, vasopressin can replace our first or second dose of epinephrine. Okay, and these are given, uh, uh, that's a single one-time dose for the vasopressin, IV. Okay. Refractory, we shock again, <coughs> continue our CPR, and then we consider our antiarrhythmics. Okay. Primarily, that's going to be amiodarone or lidocaine, and that's what we're doing with um, polymorphic VTAC with the long QT or torsade de pont. Okay. You do that, uh, the vasopressin, is it for your first or second, you know, you replace the epi with that, then do you, do you continue the epi three to five minutes from then? Um, that's a good question. It's not delineated real well when... Um, the question was, when do you continue after you give, if you do use vasopressin in your, in your first, uh, uh, first or second dose of epi, when do you continue your um, uh, uh, epinephrine if the patient has not responded to the vasopressin? That's a good question. Uh, Dr. Kerber, one of our cardiologists here, was actually um, uh, the chairman of the, a the uh, committee, the ACLS committee that evaluated this um, back in 2000. And I talked to him about this. The guidelines weren't real specific, and he said he would probably go back in five minutes if there was no response uh, with the vasopressin. Okay. So I would think that would be a similar situation which we would do for that. We don't have a lot. There's, there's no data on that because we really haven't studied that. We use one versus the other in our trials. So, but uh, probably go back in five minutes if you had, haven't had a response, as you would with epinephrine every three to five minutes. Okay. Okay, so ventricular uh, antiarrhythmic agents, okay, why do we use these? Well, they help suppress this ventricular activity, um, this abnormal activity that's trying to occur in the ventricles, okay? Um, they may elevate our ventricular fibrillation threshold, okay? Amiodarone is our first agent that we're going to talk, talk about. Now, amiodarone is a, in, it's one of my favorite drugs, okay? Um, amiodarone or cordarone, as we call it in the United States, was initially developed as an anti-anginal agent, okay, in Europe. And they were using uh, this anti-anginal patient, anti-anginal medication in patients that come in with heart attacks, okay. And after heart attacks, this is prior to beta blockers, patients had a lot of um, ventricular ectopy, okay, not necessarily would go into VTAC, but had abnormal rhythms, sometimes would have this. Well, when they put these patients on amiodarone, they found that these patients weren't having any rhythms, any abnormal rhythms, okay? That's how they, inadvertently they discovered this agent was a very potent antiarrhythmic, okay? So it's sort of they quit marketing as an anti-anginal agent 
and quickly uh, reverse course and, and uh, um, use it for its anti-arrhythmic uh, applications. Um, that's what we use it for today. However, this is an important fact to remember. It does have calcium channel blocking and beta, blo beta blocking activity. And these things do lower blood pressure and slow heart rate down. So it can have these effects also. Okay? Some of these are beneficial, but sometimes these can be negative effects in terms of effects on blood pressure and getting the heart rate too low. So what are our indications for this? Well, when we use it for ventricular fibrillation and pulses VTAC, okay, um, in patients that don't respond to CPR or shock refractory and don't work and don't respond to our perfuser, our vasopressor that we're trying to use, either epinephrine or vasopressin, okay. We also use it for control of patients that do have a pulse with their VTAC, okay, maybe talking to you but has runs, long runs of VTAC, okay. So we use it in those patients at a little bit different dosing than what we do for cardiac arrest. We also use it for polymorphic VTAC in patients that have a normal QT, okay, so not torsade de point, not that. And then we also use it for wide complex tachycardias of unknown origin, and we'll talk about these in a future lecture. Also used for narrow complex tachycardias, or re, can be used for narrow complex tachycardias or, or re-entry rhythms, uncontrolled by adenosine, vagal maneuvers, and other AV nodal blocking agents. Um, not real common uh, use for that, but it could be used. Okay. And then control of uh, ventricular rate, especially of rapid ventricular rate, um, um, in patients with pre-excited atrial arrhythmias that have an accessory pathway. Okay. So we'll use it for control of ventricular rate. All right, so back to cardiac arrest with amiodarone. Well, Wyeth uh, conducted what was called um, the arrest trial, okay? And they, and they looked at, this is an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, and they wanted to do better than what people were doing with their perfuser data. Remember we said with vasopressin, we've never compared it to placebo. Epinephrine, we've never, our, our standard, we've never ever compared that placebo. We don't know if maybe both those agents cause more harm than help. We've never ever done that with those perfusers, okay? We don't know, okay. Wyeth, Arist at the time, smart company in terms of marketing, in an out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, pulses VTAC, VFib specific situation, they compare their drug, amiodarone, to placebo, okay? Want to see if they're better than placebo. Okay, let's think about that. That's a pretty, pretty smart marketing procedure, okay, because if you can show that you're better than placebo, you know, we have over 100 medication, emergency medication bins around this hospital. If they have to put all those doses in there, and that costs about $50 for a vial, and you have to put three, three vials in there for a code situation, imagine the amount of money you could make, okay? Pretty smart, pretty smart. Plus, you know, if you make people ill, that's the best part. So they, so they looked at this. They broke it down. About half patients got 300 milligrams. Um, about half patients got a placebo, uh, normal saline. And what they found that there was a statistically, statistically significant improvement in the patient's um, um, survival to hospital admit that got amiodarone compared to placebo. Okay? However, when they looked at survival to hospital discharge, basically identical. Okay? But you do make people survive to the hospital by giving amiodarone compared to placebo. Okay? Now you could say there was some argument on, well, why don't people live any longer? Well, what was our perfuser we were using? Well, the perfuser they were using in the trial was, guess what? Epinephrine. Okay? Is epinephrine causing the problem? Like we'd mentioned, there is data suggests that when we give epinephrine, especially at high dose, we worsen heart function. And that may be the reason why people, even though they do get in the hospital, they die. Because your heart function is worse. It's pretty, you know, we had just had a cardiac, it was stopped before, pretty close to stopping, depending on what your rhythm was, okay? And now, we give that, may make it worse, okay? However, amiodarone did improve survival to hospital admit. How do, how do we give this? Well, for pulseless v, uh, VTAC or VFib, we basically give a 300 milligram IV dose give it IV push, okay? This is different than all our other indications when we give this, but for, for cardiac arrest, pulses VTAC, VFib, you give it push. It's gonna be six mLs, 300 milligrams is gonna be six mLs. 
That's not very much volume, so you're going to need to make sure you flush this when you give this, okay? We need to be flushing these things anyways, but make sure, or we have a good IV line going with um, this pushing these in. But you need to flush that. Make sure you get all that drug in, okay? You can give, a, can give a second dose. Let's say the patient does respond. They do convert, driving on in, and they go back into this. You can repeat this dose. Give a 150-milligram dose. Uh, repeat that. Okay. For other indications, for patients that have... Um, stable VTAC, okay, not, hemodynamic, not hemodynamically unstable, uh, we give a different dose. We give 150 milligrams and we prepare this in a piggyback and we run this over 10 minutes, okay. Causes less problems with blood pressure in patients that do have a pulse, okay. And then we begin an infusion, usually at one milligram per minute or 60 milligrams an hour uh, for a certain period of time, then we, usually six hours, and then we decrease this for another 18 hours at 0.5 milligrams per minute. This is something that you wouldn't see, but it's something that we would do in the hospital in patients that come in or uh, experience this type of arrhythmia. Adverse reactions, which we mentioned, and, and the problem being some of the effects, which are good, but some are de sometimes it's detrimental um, with amiodarone. We mentioned hypotension does occur. Hypotension occurs because it has these beta blocking effects, blocks beta 1 receptors, okay? So it's going to decrease our, our rate of contraction, our force of contraction, it's going to lower blood pressure. In addition, it has calcium channel blocking activity. And this calcium channel blocking activity also can affect the AV node and decrease heart rate, but also can affect the vasculature and cause vasodilation. So it can lower blood pressure that way. Okay, this is not a common, an uncommon uh, side effect when we give amiodarone to people that have good blood pressures, okay, or maybe even marginal. We see drops in their blood pressure, okay, um, because of these effects. Um, hypotension or lowering of blood pressure occurred in 58% of patients treated with amiodarone, however, it also occurred in 48%, okay, receiving placebo. Um, bradycardia or slowing of the heart rate also occurred in patients that, um, in 41% of patients that got amiodarone versus 25% of patients that got placebo. Now there's an interesting uh, study that was done looking at different doses the company did, um, anywhere from 100 milligrams all the way up to a gram, okay, um, and they found out it didn't really matter what size of dose you got, you got bradycardia when you gave amiodarone. So when do we have to be careful with using this? Well, since it does have some of these other effects other than just a specific antiarrhythmic effects, we have to be careful with pulmonary congestion, okay? Also in patients that have cardiogenic shock, okay? Cardiogenic shock is a situation where the heart has been uh, damaged and sort of stunned, and it's not able to perform well, so it's usually got a real, real poor pump to it. Well, we give something that has beta blocking and sometimes calcium channel blocking activity to that. That even makes that worse. So now we make that squeeze even worse. Okay? That's a problem. Okay? When we decrease that squeeze when it's already very, very poor. About, our, as, about as poor as it can be and still be living in cardiogenic shock. Okay? So if you're going to make that, since it does have the beta blocking activity, you're going to make that worse. You're going to make that your heart function worse. Okay? And it's already about as bad as it can be. Okay, so cardiogenic shock. Hypotension, okay? You already got someone with low blood pressure, okay? Now you, you potentially, likelihood, you are gonna make it lower. Not everyone uh, will go lower, but there's a pretty significant chance that it will go lower, okay? <clears throat> Almost 50% chance. And then patients that have a sensitivity to have had problems with amiodarone in the past. Amiodarone is an interesting drug. Most of the toxicity is associated with long-term use, okay? You probably may, maybe have had, heard of patients that are taking this um, or um, uh, heard, heard of adverse reactions. Amiodarone is unusual. It's, it's one of my favorite drugs in that its half-life is almost two months, okay? So these drugs we're talking about before, epi, okay, one, one two-minute half-life, vasopressin, 10 to 20-minute half-life, okay? We're talking minutes. Amiodarone has a half-life, a terminal half-life, of about 55 days on average. Holy cow. It's like uranium, which stays around for thousands of years almost. It's not quite. But 55 days, okay, two months. Okay, long time. A lot of the side effects are associated with the buildup of this drug in the system, but not all of them. Some a lot of patients, about 10% of the population, will get what we call photosensitivity reaction. They go out in the sun. They get a sunburn very easy, okay? Now, some patients over chronic long-term use of this, usually for ventricular arrhythmia dose, okay, taking this orally for, for up to years, will get a discoloration of their skin, sort of a blue-gray. Blue it affects uh, uh, um, 
pigment in their uh, skin. Also, it can affect the eyes, okay? And we, so we have people that are on amiodarone, they have to have a yearly eye check, okay? Um, almost everyone will develop uh, corneal microdeposits on this drug, okay? That may worsen vision a little bit, but not, not routinely. However, there are some reports of patients going blind, have optic nerve damage with this, okay? And blindness is bad, okay? So any change in vision, these people need to be seen right away. Going on down, um, the most common side effect with oral use is upset stomachs. So we have patients just take it with food, take it with their meals when they take it. It does affect the thyroid chronically, not acutely when we're giving cardiac arrest, but chronically, they, people become hyper or hypothyroid, okay? So they have to have this checked and followed closely and they watch for symptoms. Going on down, one of the very serious side effects of this, in addition to thyroid, is that it can cause uh, pulmonary fibrosis in the lungs, okay? Where your lungs don't sort of stretch when they need, how they need to work and operate when you breathe. This comes fibrotic, they don't move, okay? And this can be irreversible if patients are on this long enough and don't stop this. And the problem with a lot of these side effects, especially if they're having eye damage, is that how long is it gonna take this drug to go away? Well, we say that for a drug to get out of your body, it takes about five half-lives completely, okay? Well, good grief. If it's 60, 60 times 5, 300 days, it's almost going to take a year from when you stop that drug for that to get out of your body. Okay, unlike epinephrine, it's going to take 5 to 10 minutes. It could be completely gone. Okay, so that's a problem. Going on down, it can cause liver problems. A lot of the liver problems were associated with giving it the IV dose, and we think that was probably related to liver infarcts associated with hypotension that, got, that was associated with its use. And then, although uh, oral amniotic administration has also been so associated with liver toxicity, so we follow liver function tests. And then it can cause um, peripheral neuropathy with chronic ingestion use. That's the bad stuff. The good thing is, guess what? It's one of our most effective antiarrhythmics we have in acute situations for atrial and ventricular arrhythmias. Okay? And patients that are on low dose, for, especially for atrial arrhythmia, usually don't experience any of those side effects. Okay, so it's a very useful drug. It's how most antiarrhythmics use has gone down, amiodarone has gone up. It's effective, and as long as we monitor for these problems, usually it's uh, um, um, pretty well tolerated. Here's your page for that. Okay, well, we say, well, wait a second, Hobbs. What about, what if we compare, so Wyeth was smart. They compared amiodarone to placebo, showed that they were better in placebo than getting people into the hospital alive. Let's compare it to our old agent, lidocaine. Okay, which we haven't talked about yet, but we will. So we want to we want to get this out there and get this used. So how does it compare to lidocaine? So the initial trial compared to placebo is called a rest trial. They love these acronyms in cardiology. This was called amiodarone versus lidocaine. This is called the alive trial. Okay, where they randomized patients to standard dose lidocaine versus our dosing we already mentioned for amiodarone. Um, this is out of hospital uh, VFib arrest. Okay a little over 300 patients. And they found, lo and behold, look what happens. Survival to hospital meant much greater with the amiodarone versus lidocaine. And lidocaine was our, was our number one agent we were using before this, okay? Now amiodarone comes around, wow, almost doubles it up in terms of improvement, okay? Over 20% for just a little bit over 10%. Okay, survival to hospital meant. Now you say, well, wait a second, Hobbs. What, what about, uh, what was the survival of the hospital discharge? Because I know you're thinking that. Because we already looked at that with epinephrine and vasopressin. And what do you think? Same. Didn't matter. Exactly the same. Okay, survival to discharge was no different with amiodarone versus lidocaine. More patients again were alive, okay, with the amiodarone into the hospital. But to leave the hospital alive, didn't matter which agent you used. Lidocaine, cents, amiodarone used to be about $50, so about $100 for the initial dose, and $150 if you gave it another, uh, the, uh, the additional $150. So sort of expensive, you know, talking a few dollars versus up to $150, okay? Now it's available as generic, and that's changed things a little bit. Okay, indications. Lidocaine, not the drug of choice now, okay? Um, used for monomorphic and polymorphic VTAC. If ventricular function is preserved, it's preferred. Although it is used in heart failure patients, at least at our institution, and stable heart failure patients with ventricular arrhythmias. Um, ventricular fibrillation and pulses VTAC, also another indication for lidocaine. 
What's our dosage of this? Well, for ventricular fibrillation and pulses VTAC, basically we give one to one and a half milligram per kilogram. Okay, we give this every five to ten minutes. However, we have a maximum ceiling dose with lidocaine. This is one thing I never ever want you guys to forget. Our maximum dose of lidocaine is three milligram per kilogram. Okay, burn that into your brain right now. Three milligrams per kilogram is our max dose of lidocaine. Never forget that. Okay. Your total load that you ever give for your loading dose for lidocaine for your cardiac arrest situation. Okay. Well, you can you can re you can repeat that. I'm going to tell you what we do in a little bit here. Up to you can so you, let's say you give one milligram per kilogram. Okay. Doesn't respond. You can give more. Okay. So let's say we got a let's say we got a hundred kilogram patient. We're using our one milligram per kilogram dosing. That's what you remember. That's what's easiest for you. So you give a hundred milligrams. Okay. Patient doesn't respond. Okay. You're continuing with your efforts. In five to ten minutes, you can give another hundred milligrams. Doesn't respond. In five another five minutes, you can give another hundred milligrams. But then you have to stop. Okay. Because you're you've reached your three milligram per kilogram dosing. Okay. And the reason why that is, is because lidocaine has CNS, or central nervous system toxicity, and will cause seizures, okay, in too high a level. That's, that's, it causes other stuff, but that's our most concerning effect with high levels of lidocaine, okay? Seizures and coma can occur with this, and death is then uh, also reported with too large of concentrations of lidocaine. And that's why we have to stop with this drug, okay? It has a longer half-life than most of these agents, okay? Um, longer than an hour, okay? A little longer. There's our page in your text. So what we do after we give this dose, if we've got a patient converted that had VTAC, then we will typically start an infusion, okay? And this depends on what our bolus dose that we gave, okay? So we got our maximum, we got our maximum bolus to go, dose to go up to, three milligram per kilogram. Hopefully we don't have to get up that high. But that's where we max at. Don't go over that. Then we start our infusion. Okay, and our infusion is to sort of maintain that level up there. So if we give a one mic per, or one milligram per kilogram bolus, we start our infusion at two milligrams per minute. If we give a two milligram per kilogram bolus, go to three milligrams per minute. And if we give a three milligram per kilogram bolus, we go to four milligrams per minute for our infusion. A few caveats here, though. Okay. As with everything, we need to reduce the infusion dose, not the bolus dose. Everyone gets the same bolus dose, okay, regardless of their conditions. However, certain conditions require us to use a lower infusion dose of lidocaine. Patients with reduced cardiac output, heart failure. Patients with heart failure do not metabolize this as readily as patients that do not have heart failure, and thus they accumulate lidocaine much quicker, okay, and their levels become elevated. So we give half the dose. So let's say we were giving them two milligrams per minute, they have heart failure, okay, if that's our normal dose we were going to use, we start them at one milligram per minute, okay? Makes sense? You just give them half the dose if they have heart failure, reduce cardiac output. Patients that have liver dysfunction, hepatic dysfunction, they get half the dose also. Okay, this drug is metabolized in the liver. Okay, it's how we get rid of this, break this down. They can't do that as readily and their levels increase. So if we're going to start at two milligrams per minute after we give them their bolus dose, okay, we use one milligram per minute instead. So heart failure conditions, liver dysfunction, half the dose. And then the elderly patient, okay, patients usually over 70 we'll give lower dose to. Half it again, okay? If you don't, these patients cannot get rid of this, their levels are gonna go up. And unfortunately, I've seen patients have seizures from elevated, from elevated lidocaine levels, okay? Above five mics um, per mil. And one of the pharmacists I worked with actually seen a patient come in, had a lidocaine wanting on one arm, another person hung lidocaine on the other arm, came in seizing. Okay, guess what? They had a high lidocaine level. Okay, that was an inadvertent error, obviously, but something that happened. Okay, I've seen it where patients, where the dose had not been reduced. 
okay, in heart failure, and the patient had a very high level of C's. Okay, they ended up being okay, but that was the problem with their seizure was the lidocaine. Okay. So those three situations, don't forget that. Lidocaine, okay, you get the same bolus dose, they have heart failure, okay, you can go up to three milligram per kilogram, but that infusion dose has to be reduced, okay, for three situations, heart failure, elderly, and liver dysfunction. Liver, it doesn't have to be liver failure, but pretty significant liver dysfunction. You see a guy that's jaundiced, you're not going to be giving him full dose of lidocaine. Okay, so at, as levels start to increase with this, we start to see some of these CNS side effects with, uh, with uh, lidocaine. And if you start to see this, even if this patient doesn't have these, doesn't have these three reasons why they may not clear it as readily, you need to think about starting to reduce your lidocaine dose because they're starting to get some toxicity signs. And you usually see signs, as long as the patient's sort of with it enough to see them, um, you usually see these signs before they start to, go, start to have seizures. So that can be, uh, give you a little uh, a heads up in terms of what's happening, okay? So muscle twitching is one. Patients start to slur their speech, start to seem to get pretty confused, okay? Uh, have a decreased hearing, okay? That's a little bit uh, odd type of thing, but something to think about. Paresthesias around their mouths, okay? Start to get numb, may be affect how they're talking also, okay? Seizures as the level goes up. So if you start to see these other things first, lower your dose down, okay, half it, okay. Coma, and then death can occur. Okay, so where does this fit into? We said, do our shock and CPR, we're in our, our pulses, uh, uh, VTAC, VFib algorithm over on our left side in terms of cardiac arrest. Shock CPR, refractory shock CPR, still doing that. Our perfuser, epinephrine or vasopressin, refractory, shock CPR, then we consider our antiarrhythmics. First one, if we have it, is amiodarone, okay? Appears to be a little bit better than lidocaine, okay? If we don't, then we use um, lidocaine. Okay, so the 2006 recommendations for lidocaine as an alternative to amiodarone, okay? However, it's interesting. We have no human data indicating effectiveness in shock refractory um, um, pulses VTAC or VFib. There's just no data. This is sort of extrapolated data with lidocaine. Came back from data when we used to give lidocaine prophylactically after patients had MIs, heart attacks. And like I said, patients after they had an MI would have all these little, all kinds of ventricular ectopy. Okay. Well, they say, oh, this is bad. We don't want the patient to go on VTAC, have a long run of VTAC, go into VTAC, go into VFib, and die. So let's try to prevent that using lidocaine. So they put all these people who are having heart attacks on lidocaine. That was standard. This is before my time. They, this, is what, this is what they did. Well, then they did a study, and guess what they found? People were dying, and the people that were, you were suppressing the, these arrhythmias with this potent antiarrhythmic, versus the people who weren't getting any, there was a much higher rate of death in the people who were getting lidocaine. So then they stopped doing that, okay? Because you were killing more people trying to prevent the, arrhythmia, the arrhythmias than you were by just doing nothing, okay? They extrapolated that, that lidocaine would work in this situation, sort of for, basically from a lot of that data they had in that situation, okay? That's where lidocaine's use came in, okay? So our dosing for lidocaine, one to one and a half milligram, okay, can give additional doses up to that maximum three milligram per kilogram. Remember, three milligram per kilogram, okay? Don't forget that with your bolus dosing. That's easy to do. You go, oh, they responded. Oh, give a little more, you know, here it comes again. Give a little more, then you're gonna end up with a seizure. Then you're gonna end up with another problem, a pretty significant problem also, okay? So don't forget that with lidocaine. Okay, magnesium. As you remember, magnesium sort of came about down in the bottom of the arrhythmia, um, or of the antiarrhythmics um, in our algorithm for pulses VTAC, uh, VFib, and it said specific to torsade de, de poids, okay? And that's a type of polymorphic ventricular tachycardia caused by a prolonged QT, okay? By, caused by a prolonged QT interval. You guys, you guys have not had the EKGs yet, right? You guys will learn this, and you'll, you'll understand what I'm talking about when you review this after you sort of got ahead of the, sort of ahead of the game a little bit here. Okay. So patients with magnesium deficiency syndrome, low magnesium levels in the body, what happens to them? Well, they can have cardiac arrhythmias. Okay. So they have low stores of magnesium in their body. 
Okay, so we get patients that come in for whatever reason. Uh, some drugs cause this, cause magnesium and other electrolytes to be depleted. When this happens, okay, patients go into uh, different rhythms than their than their normal their normal sinus rhythm. This is a problem. Okay, and we have to treat these. We have to give these patients a lot of electrolytes, a lot of different kinds of electrolytes. Um, can also decrease our heart's uh, um, uh, function. Okay, can cause cardiac insufficiency and can lead to sudden cardiac death. So when do we give this? Like I said, this, this rhythm called torsade de poids. Okay. Uh, torsade at this point is if you live west of this morning, I guess you could say that. Okay. Um, so that's one indication. Polymorphic VTAC caused by a prolonged QT. Magnesium, magnesium deficiency. So we have low mag. We give magnesium to these patients. Okay, they may be having some some type of atrophy, something like this. Actually, has been studied for ventricular rate control with atrial fibrillation. Not routinely used. We do not see that used very much in our institution. But there is some limited data. A few studies on this that shows that it does have some effect in controlling a fast ventricular fast ventricular rate associated with atrial fibrillation. So atria is going real fast. AV node is blocking maybe every, every other impulse, but not blocking them all, so you got to go on 300 beats per minute, okay? It's 150 beats per minute now in the ventricles, okay? Normal is anywhere from 60 to 100, so we're going 150. That's pretty fast, okay? Magnesium's been shown to actually help decrease that rate in the ventricles, okay, even though the atria is going fast. So what's our dose? Well, our, our most important dose to remember for tersades is um, one to two grams, and we dilute this, okay? And you can dilute it in D5W, and then we give it over, um, usually, usually in this situation, we get a, give it pretty quickly, over five minutes, okay? Uh, and you can give this pretty quick in this situation, in a rest situation, because you want to get that in there. Um, also, um, for ventricular rate control, um, one to two uh, grams is used. This is, comes in vials. Usually it comes in one, one gram vials. Um, so you're given one gram, which is usually a couple of mLs, or two grams, which would be four mLs. And then you're diluting this and giving this over anywhere from five to 60 minutes, depending on the urgency that you need to give this with. What do we need to be careful with? Well, um, if you give it push, okay, remember I said over five minutes, so you give it push, it can lead to lowering of the blood pressure and flushing. Okay. Um, and also has led, there are case reports of patients having a systole after giving this over a few seconds. Okay, large doses over a few seconds. And there's your page for that. Okay. Procainamide used to be in the algorithm and it's really no longer in there um, for pulses VTAC or, or VFib. Okay, it's an old agent. Um, I used to say I haven't seen it used for years, although uh, we did use it not too long ago um, in a patient that. Um, had a, uh, uh, some problems with lidocaine, amiodarone, didn't have good choices, actually used procainamide, and in, in, uh, surprisingly, it actually worked. I was somewhat doubtful about that. It doesn't have a real good track record for um, uh, arrhythmias, but it did work. Okay, so now we use it for stable monomorphic ventricular tachycardia. So patients usually have a pulse, they're going in and out of ventricular tachycardia, we're trying to keep them out of that, we may give them procainamide. Also used for control of atrial fibrillation um, and atrial flutter, okay? Try to convert people out of this. And we used to use it for maintenance therapy, and we used to give them tablets of this, although it's not a real effective agent for maintenance therapy. Um, and for AV uh, re-entry tachycardia. Now what we do for most of the part on those, those are completely, <laughs> almost always cured by radiofrequency ablations. Uh, a mechanism, uh, a mechanism in which they burn certain pathways and then the arrhythmia never comes back because there's no way for it to go up that route it was going. So usually we, we would never use it chronically for that. So what is our dosage? Well our dosing, and one of the reasons why it was really never used in the um, pulses VTAC, VFib algorithm other than having a small trial of uh, less than 20 patients in it um, to support its efficacy, it was very hard to give. Okay, it was a hard agent to give. It was a hard agent to give a lot of drug in a short period of time. Okay, so typically what we'll do in the U.S., they give this at a faster rate in Europe when they give this, um, but it's, in the studies we've always done in the U.S., we always had a problem giving it at a faster rate from side effects. We start at 20 milligrams per minute. Okay, so we, we put a gram in a bag, okay, and then we try to figure out, okay, what's 20 milligrams? We want 20 milligrams a minute or 100, um, or uh, uh, 1,200 milligrams basically go over an hour, okay? 
So we do this, we start running this at this rate until one of several things happens. The arrhythmia goes away. This is how we administer our load of this. Okay, we said lidocaine, we just give it, right? We get, we get our load, we use one milligram per kilogram. We just give our 100 milligrams to 100 kilogram guy and there's our load. This is how we have to load this. We start this drip at 20 milligrams per minute. And then if our arrhythmia goes away, then we stop that load. We've given our load, okay? Or if the patient starts to develop hypotension, very common side effect that we see with procainamide. It does cause significant amount of hypotension, unlike lidocaine, which does not do that. Or the QRS widens by more than 50%, okay? So this, this interval that you're going to learn about when we study your EKGs gets long. And this can actually prolong the QT, and this can actually cause torsade de poids, arrhythmia, okay? So we can actually induce polymorphic VTAC, a rhythm that's going to kill someone with this drug, okay? That's another reason why we don't use that, because we can, we can and, and people died from this rhythm when they took this drug every year, okay, when we use this orally. We don't really use this drug orally anymore. Or, the last thing, in terms of our load, we reach a 17 milligram per kilogram dose. So we have a 100 kilogram guy we're using for easy figuring, so we start this at 20 milligrams per minute, we get up to uh, uh, 1,700 milligrams, then we stop our load. Okay, we don't give any more than that. That's just how you load the drug. Then after you load it, you start a continuous infusion, basically similar to what we would do for lidocaine. We start it in the range of one to four milligrams per minute, okay? And we don't really have any good guidelines for where you do that, but if you give a larger dose, if you're giving, a, a, you know, over a gram, gram and a half, you're gonna be starting on the higher end. However, there are some caveats to this. Procainamide is renally cleared, part of it, and it's also metabolized in the liver. 